0: Hello and welcome to A.A. Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. Today, Ben and I will be talking about resentment, fear, and sex. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. hey Ben how you doing
1: good John how have you been
0: I'm doing excellent and looking forward to getting into the next step we'll see how far we go um we'll, we'll plan on doing steps four and five but we might have enough to talk about in step four that that might just take up the full hour but we'll see how it goes so step four is um, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and and I guess Ben maybe the best way to start is why don't you just kind of give us an idea of what what you think this step is about and maybe from your your own experience, if you just want to talk about it a little bit, and then we can just kind of go into it from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I kind of reread some of our literature getting ready for this, and I guess my first experience with Step 4 was very half-assed, I guess I'd say. It was, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I kind of was walked through it, but maybe I wasn't quite ready to be walked through it. I was being kind of stubborn about it, and then I went through and read on my own And, um, you know, inventory. That's all I think of. Even now, when I go back and I read it, it's not that I don't believe there's such a thing as morals or they're important. But a lot of what I hear, even when I read through the literature, is it's not moral. It's, um, you know, with, with some science background and psychology background, it's it's emotional it's cognitive it's um it's slowing down our thoughts and taking a look at them and asking ourselves what's really going on did we do things that were immoral i mean i suppose it depends on people's code of what they do i mean mm. i i certainly did things i i would never have done in my right mind and you know i probably still do things that aren't aren't the best but you know, I can definitely get behind the idea of needing to take an inventory and, you know, in the end result, I think what this step did for me the first time I worked it and more thoroughly working it later was get getting away from blaming everything else and just taking a good hard look at myself and saying, no, it doesn't matter what necessarily happened. It's how you react to it and what you're going to do moving forward that's going to make a difference in your life. That was the benefit Thanks. I got from it.
0: Yeah, that was my experience, too. Um, when I look back at my life, Ben, uh, prior to Alcoholics Anonymous, and of course I, I was kind of young, so I give myself some credit there, but I didn't really have a lot of experience with introspection. I, I always looked um, to the outside of myself for what was going on with me, if I thought about my problems at all. It was always, I never looked at my own motives or how I was being impacted this was all new stuff for me. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget uh, the very first time someone showed me how to do an inventory as it's laid out in the big book. Mm-hmm. It was at um, the Shrine and the Hill group. In Kansas City, Kansas, and this woman by the name of Carol, who had been in the program for 20, 30 years or whatever, um, sat down with me and she helped me dissect a resentment. And we just picked some memory from the past, something that was just lingering in my mind. It was something from when I was like eight years old. And we went through that thing. And I remember just from that one little example of gaining some insight into myself, some understanding of myself, and some forgiveness of myself that I had never experienced before, just doing something simple like that. So I, I think I, th- I think that's a pretty powerful tool. Now, after she showed me how to do that, it took me a while to actually um, put pen to paper and uh, get it written out. Um, and we'll talk about that. But I think that that delay is also kind of part of the experience of the step. Because I think one really has to be prepared psychologically, emotionally, or whatever to do it. You, you, you get, it, it it's done when the time is right, I think.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, we hear tons of stories, and we've all probably helped people through the steps or realized when we're procrastinating as well, but it's a real tender thing for people who have problems with alcoholism and addiction, things we get into in a step four, um, You know, some people just focus on the resentments and the fears and a little bit of the sex inventory, which I mean, that's basically what it is. But Mm -hmm. it seems like sometimes we have people who are amateur psychologists taking people into some really hardcore, deep traumas that need to be very, very carefully delved into. And and I'm not even sure that's it's always relevant to get into that stuff in a step four. That's and you know, it's important who you trust with that stuff, because I think we see people get into a step four and then go out and relapse and, you know, it's It seems like a lot of the theme you hear from people around the meetings is, oh, well, you know, they weren't ready to get honest or, you know, they didn't they left something off their step four. And and a lot of times I'm thinking like, no, um, you walk them into something very traumatic and you didn't know how to walk them out of it or walk them through it. And then they're stuck in this hyperactive PTSD like state. And the thing they've done their whole life to quell that is what they're going to turn to. If you don't, you know, sometimes we get somebody into something and it's really, it can be really, really harmful and dangerous. And we shouldn't use that to procrastinate getting into some things. But, you know, the program isn't always designed to uh, deal with that type of stuff i mean i think it can but um it can be it can be really touchy territory it
0: can be and also um the way that this is laid out in the big book i don't think necessarily step four but i think in step five it says that this is a step that we believe we must do or we'll drink Mm -hmm. so it's there's a lot of pressure on us to get this right Mm -hmm you know, and um, because we think that we're going to drink if we don't do it. So we have that pressure. And then a lot of us have, if you know, I had this experience where I had a sponsor that was pressuring me to do the writing, you know, every day time I would see him, he'd ask me if I was writing. And that was that was some additional pressure. Mm-hmm. I would like to take that pressure off of people. You know, this might be controversial for some, but I, I prefer not to look at these steps as things that I have to do. Or I'll get drunk if I don't. Mm-hmm. I like to look at them as these these things are for my benefit. Mm-hmm. I do believe that they were helpful for me because um, I think that I, I I did need to change um, for my um, recovery to go better, for me to have a better chance at at not drinking. I think I needed to make some changes in my life, and I think I needed to have some understanding of what was. Um, driving me mm-hmm. and making my life unmanageable. And this really helped with that.
1: For sure. I think, you know, it's it's the step, again, we talked last time on step three about it, its empowerment. And this is further empowerment. Like you talked about just that woman walking you through how to how to do a column method mm-hmm. resentment. And I do, I really like how the book lays that out. I'm not so crazy about the seven deadly sins, but yeah. I, I did I did use those to look at that. And it's it's cool because you get to name what's bothering you. You get to name, you know, that that second column is like where you get to really take the other person's inventory and then the third one is saying, But you know, what's your part and how did this affect you? Right. Um, so it's it's a really good way to break it down. And sometimes when I walk people through their resentments, I don't maybe I'm a bad sponsor. I don't have I don't always have them say you list every damn thing you've ever been resentful about in your life. But if right. if I can get them started on way of looking at their resentments, then you can get to a place, I think, where you recognize your resentments when they're happening and you can break them down quick and you can get yourself back into a calm place.
0: Yeah. My sponsor told me, and I think I heard other people at meetings talk about the fourth step, and they would say that you're going to recognize a pattern. So it's almost like you don't necessarily have to write down every single thing because they all boil down to pretty much there's a there's a common denominator running through most of them i think most of these resentments yeah and they set they um, set you up mm-hmm. great
1: for st- step six and step seven because yeah they really you do. know the patterns and you can you'll be able to name them after you're done with this
0: i will um, before we get into this i will t- say to newcomers out there that don't feel like you really have to rush into this because one of one thing that i experienced when i was going to meetings is a lot of this stuff comes out just from the process of going to meetings mm-hmm. i mean w- when you're when you're going to meetings you're being honest about yourself and you're listening to other people be honest about yourself which just which just makes it easier and that self-honesty alone is a beginning as an and is part of the principles i think of the step so you know there's just so much of these things that just kind of seep into our our system just by showing up and, and participating in meetings so oh, i
1: agree with that so much john i think it, it is part of the natural process that happens i mean yeah th- but the thing I'll say about step four and step five and all the pressure put on it, it's like it's there's so much peer pressure and so much fear based stuff thrown at it that it's like one, I think it encourages people to not even start because right. it gets made into like this boogeyman, I think, right. you know, and it's um, it's just whatever, wherever, wherever you meet it at is great. I think whatever you do to start digging into it is fine. You know, we've got some people who will say, well, I did all 12 steps in this amount of time and blah, blah, blah. And if you do them right, you never have to do them again. I haven't, I haven't, you know, you just do a step 10 every time instead of another, because I'll sometimes say I work the steps every so often. And, you know, there's a few old timers that roll their eyes. Well, I'm not always prepared at any given point of my sobriety to deal with certain things. Things are kind of, I guess, for lack of a better word, revealed to me over time when I'm prepared to deal with them. It's like there's, there's resentments that popped up, you know, like at eight years sober that I didn't even know were there. And I'm able to break them down now and get a better understanding of myself that, there's no way in heck I could have even touched that or had any idea about it when I was a year or two sober.
0: Exactly. I do the same thing. It's a This is a tool that you can use at any time. It just shows you how to um, break down these resentments and these fears and to, and to just... You know, it's a a handy way to have some introspection and understanding of yourself. And I've used it out of order even. Um, Before I actually did my official fourth step, I did a mini inventory on a situation that I had at work that was really bothering me. Mm -hmm. And I did a fourth and fifth step just on that one situation. Um, So it kind of goes back to... It's almost like any you put something on paper, it just kind of helps you understand, I think, what's going on with you. Um, so this is just kind of a handy tool
1: for that. For sure. It's like the serenity prayer in action just really quick.
0: Exactly. Yep. It really is. So um, when we get into step four is set up by step three. And we talked about this last time that step three, you know, is all about um understanding that our basic problem is self and our self-centeredness. And I'm look, I got the big book in front of me. There right you now. go. And uh, when we get into step four, it says that, um, you know, we need to look at the various manifestations of self. And one of those they say is the biggest offender is resentment, which I think is a really good way of, of looking at it. And for those people who haven't heard this at a meeting, this helped me understand what a resentment was. If you break that word down, resentment, you re-feel mm-hmm. something. It's, it, that's what it is. it is. It's reliving some past event and feeling the emotion of that past event today, just as if it's happening right now and why don't we have a little discussion about resentment ben what what tell me what you th- how you feel about resentment and the value of of looking at resentments
1: you said it perfectly i mean it does it comes from i think the greek word uh, sentire which is to feel and so i think we always think of anger when we think of resentments but it's not it's like a lingering feeling about anything exactly and um you know I found during this whole process, it's a way to, well, it's a literally a way to process those feelings and get, again, I'll come back to the empowerment thing. This is about gaining some control back over our own well-being and not giving power to these either things that happened or other people in our lives or our own tendencies or situations we put into, we're put into that um, its it's just about taking back a little bit of our power and control over how we feel about ourselves. And it it is, Mm -hmm. it is, it's about feelings. It's about re feeling something. And I, there's some things that I, I guess I still have resentments about because I still feel them, but they are, they're on a lesser degree and I can process them quicker and I can put them, I can frame them in a different way so they don't have power over me anymore.
0: I uh, remember. I think there's a lot to resentment, feeding the, fueling the fires of alcoholism. Um, I remember Ben sitting in, in bars, nursing drinks and reliving some past event, mm-hmm. some trauma of my life. Um, you know, I, it, it, it was, ju- it was just part of who, who I was and what I was. Between the drinking bouts, there was always, I, my mind was in the past somewhere frequently and, I think that what I found out about resentments is they they take on a life of their own. they take on their own reality. so what they, they're based in fact, but over time, we add to them to where we don't even know what's true or not anymore. Mm-hmm. So resentment is a really good way of our uh for us to trick ourselves, I think, and to um, kind of scapegoat our our problems and put them on something else rather than where where maybe they, they belong.
1: Right. Well, and it's a, a great way to keep things stirred up so you can put out the flames with some drink. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, this. the book is dead on about a lot of this stuff. I really, I really, 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 as I was rereading it again, it's just, it strikes me as how dead on they are about a lot of that stuff. It's sometimes the tone of it really annoys me. But But they're right on about this stuff, and it's about gaining that power back and We don't have to linger in that crap anymore there's a way to work through it and and not stay stuck in it and when i yeah. and when I hear people talk about these things in meetings it's it's like the the resentment is cured, and it's gone, and it's this and it's that well, there are some resentments that are like that for me, but there are some that that still linger a little bit they take time to to get out of those memory banks or something but there's not i yeah. don't there's nothing wrong with you if you continue to have a little bit of resentment about something, but i think if if we're aware we have it, that makes it a little bit different
0: yeah for me it it wasn't like the resentments were removed but i I was able to gain some understanding of myself and forgiveness of the people that I resented right so yep. um because I was able to put into context the 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 i was able to put into context the time. And what those people were, my, perhaps going through in their life, mm-hmm. and where I was at in my life at the time—I don't know. I, I could just see that, you know, we're all human beings. We're all doing our
1: best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a big result of this too, I think. And and again, uh, uh, I don't know if this was intentional, but it does roll very nicely into six, seven, eight, and nine because if I'm understanding and I have some humility and understand what part I role I've played in my resentments and feeling bad about everything, it makes a little bit easier to understand how I maybe made other people feel with the eight and nine stuff. So then I can make a decent amend and apology because I, I understand how we all have these, these foibles and these difficulties and how we take things out on each other.
0: So when I, when I was, um, doing this, um, I I did mine the way it's outlined in the big book. I did the columns. I'm resentful at the cause and what it affects. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a nice, simple way of uh, of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and there's a there's a series of things that we go through. Now, when 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 I was doing this, all I did is um, I sat down on paper and I I just I just went through whatever memory would pop up in my head, not maybe not necessarily in chronological order, just whatever would, would come up. And I would just start by by listing those resentments and then I would go back through and and look at the um, the cause and effect after after I did it. Mm-hmm. Putting out of my mind the what the other person's role but just simply looking at my part i i i don't really see this as a as a as a scorecard of who's right and who's wrong who's good and who's bad this is just trying to figure out what made what made me the way that i am mm-hmm. at the at the risk of being of being a, being a downer mm-hmm. <laughs> i'll just kind of talk about my my first resentment the very very first thing that i put down on my fourth step and my resentment was at my mother for taking her life mm-hmm. It was her suicide. And I had to list that as the very first thing because I know that that my drinking um, got way crazy after her death. Somebody gave me a shot of whiskey, and it was the best damn thing I ever had in my life
1: mm-hmm.
0: right after she died. And um, I was drunk for five years after that. And when, when I'm talking about the sick um, resentments that I would think about when I was drinking, that would be the one event that I would play over and over in my head. So I took a look at that. Um, I took a look at, at at that, and I had to ask myself, you know, what what did this affect? What did this do to me? Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly affected my sense of security. Mm-hmm. You know, um, your mother is the one person that is supposed to provide you some some sense of security. I would think you would you'd feel secure, and and she left like that. Um, there was some fear um, that I would be like her. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the, her, what she did was a, was a pattern in my family already. She was the second generation in a row to end her life that way. Um, so there was fear, there was, um, a, a loss of security, self-esteem, um, being ashamed mm-hmm. of what happened. Um, this was a big secret in my family all my life, my mother's mental illness and depression, And when she finally committed suicide, it was something we did not want to talk about. We did not want to be open about. So there was a lot of shame involved. And I carried that shame with me for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You know, people would ask, how'd your mother die? Well, whatever. You know, I'd always have to make something up. Mm -hmm. So... um, well, And and
1: also, sorry to jump in, John, but it affected your relationships at the time and going forward.
0: Absolutely, it did. Absolutely, it did. So that's where I started. I started with that. And then I just went on down the line. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, and then we'll go into step five later, <clears throat> doing this, um, do I still have that resentment? Is it something I can re-feel? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. I think to a certain extent, I, w- I want to still be able to re-feel it, mm-hmm. because, it because it gives me the, the the ability to empathize with others who have the same thing, mm-hmm. but it doesn't drive my life. I'm not sick with that resentment anymore. I understand what it did to me. I understand how it affects me. Not necessarily removed, but it absolutely does not drive my life anymore. Mm-hmm. And this this um, coming into AA and, and finding this tool really helped me. I don't know if I ever, maybe I could have gone to a therapist or something and got the same benefit. But this really gave me some freedom, some control, some way to figure out what the hell happened in my life from the time I was, I, my earliest memory to that, that point when I was actually putting this stuff down on paper. Right.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that, John. Uh, you you said that so well. What's brought to mind is, I was talking with some friends this week about, um, it was like REBT, which is Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy, and it's a form of CBT. And a good four-step or somebody helping you walk through a four-step like you obviously could do for someone the way you just described that um, is very, very similar to that. Um, in CBT, we talk about the ABCs. Mm-hmm. So A is an activating event. B is the belief about the event. And C is the consequence from the belief about the event. Yep. Well, when we tend to be in chaos or you know any kind of emotional unrest, this can be true for anyone, alcoholic, not alcoholic. We tend to think A leads to C, and I'll use your example if you don't mind. Go ahead. My mom died, so then C, I'm depressed and pissed off and drunk all the time. A to C, but (laughs) the truth is there's a B in there, and I guess you could call that grit or that could it's it's how you process that thing. So in CBT, we look at our thoughts and we break them down quick. So what possibly were the B in the situation after your mom passed for you? It was. Mm-hmm. It was the things you described. It was, you know, feeling left and like she perpetuated mm-hmm. this family thing and you had to. Mm-hmm. So those are all the things we tell ourselves about that lead to see feeling awful, feeling uh, desperate about it, drinking. Now, that is an understandable feeling, right? I mean, sure. it is a tough thing to go through. Right. And especially if we didn't, if we don't have other people in our lives to help us help walk us through things. So what, CB, right. what CBT does is it gives us the time to slow down that B and learn how to process it differently. So so like, like you said, after doing this process, maybe you're, you're, if something like that were to happen to you again, your B about it would be, well, man, my mom must have been in some really hardcore emotional pain. Uh, I can't even imagine how much pain she must have been in that led to that. Or, yeah. or you know, people join suicide support groups from family members. So they say, you know, it's it's not personal. It feels personal, but it's maybe not personal. So all those things lead to the new B, the new way of framing it leads to a new result in C. So, right. So a good four-step is gets us through that stuff, but it's it's always a nice way to look at that. So I feel right. I appreciate you bringing that stuff up because it's it's not necessarily about the events that happen to us. It's how we process them and then how that leads to, to the results of it. Now, that being said, I want to give all the, you know, and he, here's where I think it can be dangerous depending who we have walking us through things. Some people, they don't have it in their constitution to walk people through that and be present for mm-hmm. other people's feelings. So mm-hmm. it would be like, I mean... I, I could even see some super hardcore old timer just saying to you all, you know, John, people die. You got to get over it. And move forward. Right, You're going to get right. in the solution. That was right. that was four days ago that your mom committed suicide. We could get right. in the solution. Damn it.
0: right right, but but what
1: it's telling me about those people is generally those people can't stand to be present for other people's feelings and i still have to remind myself of that when i'm walking people through stuff as a sponsor i've got to allow them to feel what they're going to feel and not get in a hurry to rush them through feeling what they need to feel because in all honesty that is what addiction and alcoholism is on some level we are just putting off feeling what we need to feel and go through to get to where we need to get to and we just keep kicking that can down the road. And as we all know, it eventually catches up for us, c- catches yep. up to us. And I see that there's some people, it, it it catches up with some of the notes I wrote down here that, that the only depth they get to on their steps four through seven is realizing that they're selfish, self-centered, mm-hmm. and egocentric. Mm-hmm. At some point, I think this thing has to get deeper than that and dig deeper than that. We have to be able to understand our feelings and feel them and allow ourselves and honor those feelings without just dismissing them. But even so many of the sayings I will hear in meetings sometimes, it is, it is meant to dismiss feeling. And shove it to the side and get in the solution. I think sometimes the intention is good, but right. but I think the subconscious thing going on is to avoid feelings. And hardcore AA can be that way.
0: And you know, like I was saying earlier, the the real benefit of this, I think, and I, and I still experience it today, is that we we do the same type of things over and over again. Our behaviors. I don't think our behaviors really change until we know we recognize how hard. Harmful those behaviors are, and 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 are and are aware of them. And this still happens to me after 27 years of sobriety. Mm -hmm. I have I find myself doing things, Ben, reacting in certain situations the same damn way. Mm -hmm. That is that is not healthy or good. But after you've done it a couple of times, um, you're able to you're able to start to to recognize how harmful it is, and then make some change. Mm -hmm. And one thing I will say about this too, because I've experienced this this recently. They say in AA we don't take each other's inventory. I think that changes after about 20 years or whatever, because I do have actually people that take my inventory and it's completely okay sometimes because you know what? They're right often. yeah. And they'll say, John, your problem is, you know, and I'll say, yeah, you're right. right. That is my problem. Right. I, I see that I do, I do exhibit those behaviors, but I know that the, these are good friends that do this yeah. and, and they're not saying it in a judgmental way. They're, they're just saying, Hey, you know, um, this is something you might want to look at. This is something that's happened to me, and I, I can see that you're displaying this this pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, well,
1: it's it sounds to me like because your pride isn't as strong. It's like you can take input, you can you can take feedback from people.
0: It's a benefit of the step. Yeah, it's a benefit of all these steps that you're absolutely right because you understand when you do this it's not about being good or bad right or wrong it's about being a human being Mm -hmm. we're all like this Mm -hmm. we all we all have we all have these issues in our lives we all have you know you know we 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 are who we are today because for a lot of different reasons, but you know, a lot of it has to do with the experiences that we've had in our lives. Mm-hmm. And you know, and we and we develop the, this way of of living um, based upon our reaction to these experiences. Mm-hmm. And if we don't we don't a lot most of us, I was totally unaware of, of this, you know, of, of what was going on. But once you have that awareness, it takes away the guilt and the shame and the right and the wrong and you're just actually able to look at the actual uh, behavior of what you're doing and understanding why you're doing it mm-hmm. so that you can have some hope of, of making a, a positive change
1: yeah it makes it just like a, a especially like you said putting it down on paper it just makes it a fact to look down at it's almost like an out-of-body experience like you're looking at someone else's something it's just it's just there um
0: I'll... it is like an out-of-body experience it almost has a really good way of putting it I remember when I was doing this I could I, I would almost like if I'd write about my childhood or my, or my father and, and siblings or whatever I could almost envision that time and me who I was at that time mm-hmm. it was really a pretty cool experience it's, it's it, it was it, it's just like that but I kind of interrupted you no
1: no that's fine and the cool thing is when we when we're able to look back and look at how we felt at a certain time or behaved a certain way it's kind of a confirmation of how much we've changed it is yeah. and yeah. I was also going to say the thing with when when I was doing the column method, I think for people who are maybe tend to be a little bit more on the codependent side, like take their um you know everything about themselves, their value from what other people on the outside say. If I had a tough time finding what my part was or what the seven, what one of the seven deadly sins or any of the seven deadly sins applied there, if I had a tough time figuring out what it was, it was almost always pride. Because mm-hmm. um, I'll give a little example: my mom, um, our daughter is almost six. Weeks old now. My mom still has not seen our baby, so I have a little wow. bit. I have a little bit of a resentment about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has to get an uh, immunization in order to be able to see the baby. Our pediatrician mm-hmm. suggested it, and I encouraged her to get it, and she's just dragged her feet on getting it, so she hasn't been able to see the baby. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so I that's that's my mom has always been a pretty detached person emotionally, and so that activates that in me. It's like, geez, you know, like my head wants to go to. Well, you're choosing to be lazy and not get this human immunization overseeing your daughter. Well, black and white, that's what it is, but that's not really what's going on. But, okay, so in the past... I would just sit and stew on that stuff but now because of what I've done and what I've worked on in myself it's in the past it would have been pride that would have kept me from I'll say confronting but I don't mean in like a Mm -hmm. mean way it would keep me from saying something to her like oh I don't want to stir anything up and it's not right to upset somebody but now I've also learned how to say things in a way that's not angry and I can say you know mom it hurts my feelings that you didn't get the immunization when I asked you to and that it puts off you seeing your granddaughter you know Mm -hmm. and when I can put things that way it's not an attack it's it's not it's not just being out of anger and i can tell somebody i'm mad now without sounding mad um yes yeah
0: because what you're doing you're sharing your feeling with somebody you're sharing what's going on with you you're not making an accusation at the person you're just saying hey this is how i feel and nobody can argue your feelings i mean that's how you feel and and you're just sharing that with somebody um and that's kind of what you get i think from from this program you 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 get the ability to not not only for yourself to relate your feelings to another person, but when another person tells you how they feel. I know now Ben, that if someone tells me that they feel a certain way, I have to respect that. That's their feeling. Whether it's right or wrong or whatever, that's their feeling. That's 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 where they're, they're at right now in their life and I certainly understand that. Whether I agree with whatever they're doing or not, you have to respect that when somebody shares with you how they feel about whatever is going on in their life or what behavior I myself might have exhibited that elicited a certain feeling or reaction in another person. I have to respect what their feeling is,
1: right? And, and that's that's why counselors always try and get people into that stupid "I feel" statement. You know, I feel this when you do this. It's because when, you, like you just said, when you say that to someone, you're not judging what they do. You're not saying it was wrong when you did this. It's just saying here's how I felt about what you did. And I screwed yeah. I screwed this up last week actually. Um, so we're always learning. I spoke towards the end of a meeting, and it was a uh, yeah, it got really gaudy, and it was that started tripping my trigger. And then it was people were kind of going on about anti-intellectualism and that it's not okay to think this thing through. You just got to do it. And so I stuck up for intellectualism a little bit. And I said that, you know, I'm trying to intellectualize my way into staying here. I'm not saying I used to use my intellectualism or I used to intellectualize things to work my way out of everything, like into Mm it, into a drink, out of sobriety, out of the room. I go now when I'm thinking about things and putting them together, it's how my brain works. I'm trying to make it authentic to me and here. So I'm using a natural thing of mine that I tend to do and using it for good to try and stick around here in AA. And a woman, right after I got done, first thing she said was, well, we all know people too smart to get this thing, but we don't know anybody too dumb. And we, we all yeah. got up to say the serenity prayer. And I just turned to her and I said, that was really rude of you to say that right after I said that. And that kind of started a yeah. little bit of a conflict after the meeting when her and I were talking. No, it wasn't an argument or anything. But if I would have just said, when you said that, I felt hurt, then -hmm. it would have been a discussion rather than a like, me going on the offensive right away and judging her for being like it was rude that you said that. Because it probably turned out that I personalized it a little bit, but it also was a little bit personal. But so I've gotta I've gotta always be watching this stuff and be ready to stay on top of my own inventory there, you know, and just like you said, yeah. it's just my feeling about it. And
0: Ben, you brought something up there, I think that is relevant to the non believer, the atheist agnostic or whatever. Um it's about thinking and the intellect and how that how that is sometimes put down in meetings because because people a lot of people are going to see this as a spiritual experience okay it's spiritual it's not intellectual this so and that's fine but i'm an, i'm not i'm a uh, i'm an atheist and i believe in the in the natural world i i i i um, it's everything is explainable for me and and the brain is a good thing and everything that, that happens that i process goes through my brain so when i do this fourth step i am thinking i'm thinking and that's okay and so if you're an atheist and you're new to AA and you're going to a traditional meeting and people are telling you it's going to be spiritual or whatever, it's a great spiritual experience, it's okay for you to put it in different terms, I think, that, yeah, okay, I'm going to examine my life and I'm going to think about how these experiences have impacted me. It's perfectly okay to think.
1: Mm-hmm. What?
0: <laughs> I mean, that's a, even the other guys do. I mean, they call it something else, but they are Right. right. Well, and
1: it's, it's as long as you're not using it as like a defense mechanism to not get into your feelings, it is good, it is good to good. To think this through. I mean, I get it that they're, you know, thinking about things got us into trouble before we got there, but it doesn't again, it's not, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. Either you shut yeah. your brain down and you do exactly <laughs> what we tell you to do. I'm going to tell you to bring forks for so-and-so's birthday cake after the meeting and if you, you know, it's like, it doesn't just have to be that way. There are degrees of it and I think, I think that AA could be more welcoming and get more people who the book calls potential alcoholics that we save from 10 to 15 years of the worst drinking or all that 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 crap, it it could be so much more inviting It's in it's just a place for people to go and talk about things that don't want to drink. It's like, you know, I mean, yeah, the steps are important. Yeah, we've got some of the things we do are important, but you don't I think people get chased out. It's almost like a little witch hunt sometimes. It's a subconscious witch hunt. It's like, oh, that person doesn't say the things we say or speak all the lingo we speak. It's like, oh, let's chase that person out of here. I mean, nobody's doing that on purpose, but it's like, well, Mm -hmm. it's like if I say something about questioning a step, You can be sure there's going to be like five of the next 10 people to speak that praise the living hell out of the steps. You know, it's like it's not okay to question anything. It's like if I think and I think Josie has said this many times, too. Sorry, I always quote Josie. He says so many good things. But sometimes intellectualizing and fighting to make it authentic to ourselves is a good sign. It shows we are working for our sobriety, because how many people do we know that just mouth everything and talk the talk and all of a sudden they're gone? Like, it's like, where the heck did they go? They sounded like they had it all figured out. It's like, but we are so as a group and in the group think people are so uncomfortable with hearing anything that isn't just compliant that it's like oh we got to shut that down to me it's it's always a good sign because it shows that person wants to be there they are working on it they are fighting their way into it it is a good sign
0: and as as, uh, human beings anyway um, I mean we we are we're going to think no matter what and you know we we only stop thinking when we're dead so um, it's just going to be a natural natural part Mm of this but you know when another thing I would say for the newcomer when there working on this step. Um, one experience that I had was I, I was you know I went to this group that was very much into the Big Book, and um, I was totally obsessed with doing this thing exactly the right way. And I remember um, walking around, all these different people had been in the program for a long time and had done the step. And I asked them how they did it, and would you know, I got a slightly different answer from every single person, right. and it and it drove me crazy. So there isn't really one way of doing this. Um, there's not a right way or wrong way i think it's the principle behind the thing that we're we're just kind of taking a look at ourselves and our past and trying to be honest about who we are and 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 what what drove us to um you know uh made us made us who we yeah. are
1: and it's uh there's an article i read recently about the narcissism of small differences it's like for some reason that one small difference between us the fact I don't believe in God and another person does is such a big deal well it's a big deal to me sometimes too I need to own that but to people mm-hmm. who especially believe in God it is such a big deal that I don't believe it's like we could we could be so similar 99% of everything else but that 1% makes a huge deal and it, it doesn't have to
0: when you um, you know I, I, I worked this thing from the big book and at the time I, I wasn't really an atheist or what I don't know you know so I, I was able to deal with a lot of this stuff really well but I can understand how if you're an atheist if you read some of this it might be difficult i want to read a paragraph and and kind of go how i i interpret it now because it's 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 from the big book and and there's some spiritual language in there um, that could possibly scare people but here here's what I'm going to read um, it is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness to the precise extent that we permit these do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile but with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience this business that of resentment is infinitely grave we found that it is fatal for when we, when harboring such feelings we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit the insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again and with us to drink is to die if we were to live we had to be free of anger the grouch and the brainstorm were not for us they may, they may be the dubious luxury of normal men but for alcoholics these things are poisonous so just i'll just tell you a little bit about how i see that ben um, the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience Whatever you want, however you want to define that. Um, for me, it's um, my sobriety. But with the alcoholic, whose hope is personal growth, change, um, this business of resentment is infin- is infinitely grave. Um, I think that maybe the language might be a little bit strong. But I, here's what I think about about why this how, why this. Could be dangerous for a possible relapse as far as resentment goes. And, and Ben, it's okay if you disagree with me on this. Um, I think that resentments are a way that we trick ourselves. It's almost a way that we lie to ourselves. We're not completely honest. We're, we're a bit divorced of reality when we're, when we're living in the past and, um, refueling some past event and adding to it, to it. So I I think that we're, we're not present. We're not, we're not really. In reality, and if we spend too much time like that, I can see how you know, it, uh, you know, my thinking could be you know to drink, um, you know, if I'm if I'm not being honest with with who I am, that 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 you know I that that could happen. Also, the anger thing, um, when you add that into the mix, um, when I when I was angry anyway, and not everybody has the same experience. It was almost an out of control type of a of a thing. I didn't have control over my anger. And, I mean, to the point where I mean, I would hit something. I would, I would punch a window or kick my car or some stupid thing mm-hmm. like that. Just just reflexively, I, I, I had that kind of loss of control. So if resentment and anger could cause me to lose control of, of that type of a thing, then who's to say that it could cause me to lose control and just go out and drink? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about all that?
1: I don't really disagree with you at all, John. And when you read that paragraph, as I read recently too, it's, um, I don't have that big of a problem with it. You know, the sunlight of the spirit and all that stuff. But the one thing that, t- that tweaked me a a little bit was when it says we need to f- be free of anger. Again, I know I've talked about it already, but sometimes it's not it's not a be- about being it's not okay to feel angry. No. We no one's ever going to be 100% free of anger in their life completely. Now, at, at given times if it said we need to work to be free of anger, whatever. I know that's that's maybe splitting hairs a little bit, but I'll say sometimes when anger gets brought up in meetings, it's like again, it is denial of the feeling of anger. It's like pause when angry. Uh don't allow yourself to do this angry don't be angry it's but instead it's like maybe we just need to learn how to process our anger differently and express it differently i do think in the early going when we're so um, stirred up it is best to just shut up and pause and not say anything and maybe process that anger with somebody else but if we don't learn somewhere along this way how to express our anger and that um and that anger is just anger. It should be an indicator to us about something. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's it is. It's not something to run from. It's like when, when we used to, you know, you get taught about feelings in treatment. We talk about them in AA sometimes. It's like sometimes people would say, how come there is one good feeling up there and five bad feelings? So it's uh, mad, sad, glad, hurt, afraid, ashamed, right? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I would always say back to him, I go, it's interesting that you say that because I look up there and I see six feelings. I don't see bad ones or good ones. Mm-hmm. They're just feelings. You know how we frame them is what matters. If if my child went off and um, you know did something malicious and um, you know was just whatever, it would be a normal thing to feel some anger. So it's not. Oh God, it's not okay to feel angry. I got to watch it. It's right. not. It's not okay to stay angry and not resolve anger.
0: exactly. Exactly. Anger is just a normal thing. It's not. It's not, it's, it's what, it's what, I I like the way you put it. It's a way of almost, it's like almost like a barometer of asking yourself, what's going on with me? I'm really angry. Something's bothering me here. You know, Um, I know one person who's, who asks himself whenever he's angry, he says, what am I afraid of? Mm Um, it's a, just, it's just a good way of stopping because it's like, wow, something's wrong. Um, it's, there's something I need to, I need to check out here. So anger is okay in that, in that sense. Now I don't want to be crazy, angry, you know, violent and not so crazy, um, angry all the time. That's no way to live. But there are things that happen to a person in their life that does make them angry. Right. And that's that's just perfectly normal. So um, when they say that in a brainstorm is not for us, that's a dubious luxury of, of normal men. Um, you know, yeah, I guess we don't want to stay angry, like you said. We don't want to be angry constantly. And maybe there are people who can do that. Um, I don't know if it's if alcoholics are unique, that, that it's just... I don't. I think it's a dubious luxury for anybody, quite frankly, to walk around angry all the time. I but.
1: agree. I agree. And it's you're right too. Anger tends to be a secondary emotion with something else underneath it. You're right. It's often fear.
0: Yep. Yep. Well, I got that from a guy. Actually, a guy I sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> he tells me. He tells me that all the time. He always asks himself, um, "Why am I? What am I angry? Where am I? Why? Am, where, where am I afraid? What am I afraid right. of?" So going through the big book too. You know, after we. You, we list these resentments down on paper. We, take, we go back to them, and it, I, I'm just going to just read, read from the book yeah. again. We turned back to the list, for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? we could not wish them away any more than alcohol this was our course we realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick though they did not like though we did not like their symptoms and the way that these disturbed us they like ourselves were sick too now here's the part hard for atheists we asked god to help us show them the same tolerance pity and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend when a person offended, we said to ourselves, "This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him?" God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. Okay, mm-hmm. taking out all the, the 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 language. I think there's some value in here, and and I'm not even going to say they're sick, but there's they're they're a fellow human mm-hmm. being. Um, when and, and and I and and this is how I this is. I'll just go from my experience. When I did my step four. I was able to go back and look at that list and I get I got understanding of the people who wronged me my parents primarily the 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 family of origin that I grew up in I was able to look at them with more understanding and compassion because I saw that they were human like me imperfect like me and that if I had resentments from my childhood, then certainly they had resentment from their childhood mm-hmm. that made them who they were, passing that on to me. So I was able to take that new attitude and and I apply that in my life today so that if i'm in a conflict with somebody and i get in conflicts all the time i'm able to i'm when i'm when i, when I get away from all the anger and the bullshit when i'm a, when i'm able to 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 look at my part in this and i i look at the other person and I can say, wait a second, they're just a person like me, you know, spiritually sick. They have emotional problems. They have emotional and mental problems just like I do. Right. That's what I think this is all about. So if I approach them as just a fellow human being who has who has mental and emotional problems like me, I, I could be more sympathetic and empathetic to them. And it takes it takes away all of the anger and the, the wanting to fight the person.
1: Absolutely. I love the way you frame that because I think as it reads in the book, it's almost like it gives me that tone of like, well, I'm on. I'm on team God now and so I need to just realize that there are others who are sick who need God as well. So I'm on team God, so I'm doing okay. Realize you were much you were once a sick person as well. I don't know. That's that's kind of what it starts to ring up, but the way you said it that that we're all we're all equal. We've all got our issues. We've all got our stuff that we that we go through and sometimes well especially going through this process, this is where I can get behind we can get to a place where maybe even an average ordinary person who is not an alcoholic doesn't always have to get to. Like we've got, we've got this great process to look at all that stuff.
0: Yep. Now it's difficult for someone, I can see this. I mean, an atheist, a lifelong atheist comes to AA and they're given the big book and it can be tough for people to interpret this thing. I mean, I, I guess I I'm I'm fortunate that I have the ability to do it because I've been doing it for a long time then I stopped and asked myself you know what what all this stuff means to me so I have to I do have to interpret this but you know every time I see the word spiritual I think of emotional mental you know that type you know uh, that sort mm-hmm. of thing and I, I just ignore the the god stuff um but I can certainly see that yeah um I'm a person they're people I have my own emotional hang ups they have their emotional hang ups um yeah, yeah. Live and let live.
1: There's a part in the middle of page 68 too that I was kind of reading through and it's like what I wrote in my notes is it's kind of like as God as I understand him kind of gets shot out of the water. You know, (laughs) it's like perhaps there's a better way we think so for we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. See, to me that starts to... Strike is just like egotism, like God's got this huge plan and he's got a role for me. I mean, again, I think it's awesome to feel a part of the world and that we're all a part of it. But it starts to feel like it's like, well, I'm one of the chosen ones. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. Just to the (laughs) extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? Well, I do. I've always liked that calamity with serenity thing. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality is the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. Well... So do people that don't have faith.
0: That's right. They trust. Right. The,
1: they trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let Him demonstrate through us what He can do. That is so appealing to us that are egomaniacs that uh, yeah. that feel so insignificant. Sometimes it's like God is going to work through me right now. We <laughs> ask Him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what He would have us to be. At once we commence right. to outgrow fear. Well, I, there's lots yeah. of other ways to outgrow fear. And I here here is my thing. This is as uh, anti-theist as I'll get. I think uh-huh. sometimes this kind of language can lead to that. It not lead to, but it works on that that egotism masquerading as humility. I'm just here to serve God, but underneath the underneath it all, it's like this better than or I'm. And again, I think anybody providing services to other people and helping other people that is a great thing but sometimes yeah. it starts to bump you up on this elevation chart of being above some other people a little bit.
0: Yeah. Um this is a really that was that paragraph that you read those couple paragraphs is a really good example of what's wrong with the big book right now. Um you got to read this damn thing in the in the context of its times. This is like an almost a, an historical document. This is how these people in the 1930s who came from a religious movement saw this mm-hmm. thing. So, you know, it's like when I read this now, it's almost like reading the damn Bible when you read that yeah. stuff, um, the, the type of the language that it uses. But but there was a time when I was a newcomer and I was reading this, but I wasn't an atheist, that, I don't know, I guess I, I actually tried this stuff. I mean, I would ask God to do these things and everything, mm-hmm. and I got some benefit from it, but I know now there was no, there was no God in the sky that was doing it. It was, it was my telling myself you know, it, it, you know, it says, um, you know, I, you know, I might have been asking God to divorce myself, that stuff, but I was asking myself, is what I was mm-hmm. doing. I was telling, I was talking to myself. So I guess there's some value to that, that self-talk. But yeah, you know, a lot of this stuff, when I read through that, it's really difficult to use. And and that's that's one good thing about this podcast, Ben, because you know there are people out there who are atheists, NAA, who don't, you know, they might not even know about agnostic AA groups, and they're struggling with this mm-hmm. stuff. They're struggling with this stuff. It's like, or they might not even be going to AA to begin with. If they pick up this book and they read this, it's like, what in the hell? This is crazy. Um, So yeah, it's very, very tough stuff. Um, And the whole thing about faith, it's yeah. I, I don't want to abandon the big book altogether, but we need an Alcoholics Anonymous. We need to have some updated literature that addresses this step and all the other steps and the 21st century language that we use today and not the Oxford language, Oxford group language of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Keep this for historical reference so that we know where we came from. But for goodness sakes, isn't it time that we start building on this and, and start making, making it possible for like the 25 year old in the year 2016 to come in and read something that they can relate to.
1: Yeah. It's, um, (laughs) I'm <laughs> sorry. No, for that. I'm with you. I'm with you. I didn't. I don't know why, but the first you know four or five years of being in the program, I didn't struggle with when I read through this stuff. I don't know. I just automatically like translated all in my own head as to what I thought it meant. I mean, I kind of gave the God thing a shot too, and I'm one of those people who coming into AA and recovery, I've become less. I mean, I've gone from being kind of agnostic-ish to being an atheist. Um. But it's, I just, we, I go to some meetings and it does feel like, I don't think it's intentional, but the meeting feels like here we are talking in modern day language about what the book is trying to get at. And those, those are great meetings. But, but when you said something like this earlier, when I, when when I've tried to go to this book and try to learn it, like I would a math problem and figure out how to parrot it, it has not worked for me. But, But when I've engaged it, and I said this in the meeting I was in last Monday, when I try and engage it where I'm at and try and make it make sense to me, then it started working for me. But if I'm just like, oh, I've got to read this part of the book to know exactly how to do this. No, Um, there's a line, I think, in We Agnostics where it says, don't let any bias we have against any of this stuff stop us from asking what these questions mean to us.
0: Yeah, that's my favorite line in the Big Book.
1: I love that. I love that line because it's it's not saying learn this, do it. This is the right way, and if you're not doing it this way, then you got better. You know, you're not quite working AA the way it works. It's asking us yeah. to engage in it where we're at and give it. It doesn't yeah. say it's like in meetings where they'll say, "Well, what do you have to change?" Well, everything. No, the books ask us to be willing to change everything. Right. Not to change everything. Now, do we have to change quite right. a few things? Yes, some of us more than others, but we had to be willing to change.
0: Yep. But that whole thing about asking yourself what—honestly, asking yourself what these things mean to you—absolutely do that. And that doesn't mean that you have to conform. That doesn't mean that you have to say, "Okay, I got to figure out a way to make the make it God." No, no, no. You could you could say, "Yeah, to me, it it, it absolutely has nothing to do with right. God." It has to do with psychology and, uh, you know, and, and that, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, that's what I did when, um, I mean, I've talked about this so many times, people are probably tired of hearing it. But when I first realized that I was an atheist after being in AA for 25 years or whatever, I did that. I asked myself, what do these things mean to me? And I started writing it out. And when I did that, the program really came to life for me. The steps be- became much more meaningful to me. So that is my favorite line. And, and, and ironically enough, it comes from our least favorite chapter, the chapter to the agnostic. It's the
1: only line I like in that chapter, I believe. If you <laughs> yeah. look at my big book, that's about the only thing <laughs> highlighted in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's I think sooner or later, you know, we've got to be authentic to whoever we are and if if you get into that book and who you are as a person who believes in God more power to you i'm not fighting to get people to not believe in God
0: that well, is that right. is not
1: my mission but but right. i i do i will stand up for my right to not believe and be an aa because as we know there are tons of quotes tons of relevance relevant things said by bill over the years that show we're not just we're not just some uh, well let's use bill's own words from earlier we're not just some savage belligerent who you know is just trying to stir up shit i'm trying to be authentic to who i am and i think that is the true power of recovery for me it is like i'm able to let go of well who am i supposed to be or or who would my dad who's been dead six years have me to be well guess what that doesn't matter anymore and some of the things he wanted to be me to be were insane you know it's it's not good it's like allowing us to have our own life walk our own authentic path, and be able to feel comfortable and okay with that.
0: I'm glad that you said that. We're not anti-God, and we're not trying to take anything away from the people for whom God and religion and spirituality is very important. Absolutely not. I mean, that's great that there are people that are perfectly comfortable with this language in the Big Book, big book today, and I don't want to take it away from them. I, I don't want to change a damn word of the Big Book. Keep it forever. I'm saying maybe get some other other books. But, yeah, we're not anti-God at all, but we're just wanting to say that there's a lot of people out there who don't believe in God, and let's make room for these people, mm-hmm. too. Um, it's really tough for people um, out there. I mean, I get people all the time, Ben, coming to our meeting who are atheists, who've been in, even been in AA for a long time, and one of the first questions they ask me is, how do you work the steps? Mm-hmm. How do you work the steps as an atheist? Because for some people, it's it's really, really tough. And... And it's there's no one quick easy answer for it, but that little line that you said is really the key. Is you ask yourself what these mean, to, what what does it mean to you?
1: Yeah.
0: and and write and I that's what I do tell them. I say ask yourself what they mean to you and start writing the steps out in your own language. Start from there.
1: Yeah, and just engage in this process and then continue to do it. And if it works for you, great. If not, there's other options. It's not. Yep, I can and for the people who the God thing works for, I can respect their right to believe while not really respecting their belief. You know what I mean? I'm, it's not mm-hmm. that I'm anti their belief, but I, I respect their right to to believe. I can do that yeah. and we can engage on that. But it's it gets frustrating for me that all I have to do is say something about questioning God for myself. In my experience, that wasn't how it worked for me. If I say something like that, People tend to get a little bit up in arms. But if I just if I don't even mention that word or, you know, say I don't believe, then it's everything's fine.
0: So it's yeah. And I can see how I can offend people because I'll I think it's almost funny sometimes the God stuff. I I crack up over Mm -hmm. it. You know, I I think it's hilarious because to me, it's so it's so ridiculous that there's some God that does stuff. I just start laughing but I know that the person who has deep convictions about God, they would be offended by my by me having that attitude. Right. But I'm not trying to be offensive. I genuinely think, wow, this is this is crazy. This mm-hmm. <laughs> is, but but I guess I sh- is it wrong for me to think like that? I mean, that's just who I am. No, I
1: don't, you know. I suppose if as long as I'm not <laughs> acting out of that in a meeting, I think it's okay. Which I'm not always good at. Which I want to use this as a chance to say because I've been contemplating about going to Austin and all that stuff because we've got a new baby. When I I would sit in meetings and like you said when this stuff would sometimes come up <clears throat> I would think to myself this is like insane thinking and then I I you know I would talk to some other people I trusted around the room and I'd be like is is this crazy or what and like people would be like no no you know that's the way it's always been that's what... <laughs> and it's just and I'm like so especially when I was newer to the room it's like I hadn't been I'll say brainwashed but I hadn't been engulfed in AA for so long that this insane stuff that happens and gets said seems so logical. You know, it was so when I went to Santa Monica the first time for the conference, it was cool just to be talking about something or an issue or it could be in a workshop or it could be, Mm -hmm. you know, between workshops and just have somebody say, oh, yeah, I've had that thought, too. And then I'm like, oh, thank God I'm not crazy. It would be like, you know, me as a new parent in a moment of frustration, sometimes it's like, I'll think, what in the hell have we gotten ourselves into? Did we make the right choice here? Whereas, you know, then I could talk to another new parent and they'd be like, oh God, I have that thought too, you know? And then all of a sudden I don't feel like, God, you're an awful parent for wondering if you made the right choice having a kid or not, you know? it's That was the feeling I had out at at Santa Monica in that the workshops, they were all so varied and we're all allowed to... I don't even want to say disagree because people weren't disagreeing. We were ha- we were right. having discussions about things that I felt for a long time it was not okay to even question or have a discussion about. And it was so refreshing. And I am so looking forward to seeing everybody in Austin. And I hope we can make it work with uh, having a new baby and everything. But
0: I hope you can, too. I'd love to see you there. I, I first met you in Santa Monica. And, you know, you're right. We we all have these different, all these various um views of and approaches to the program even when our in our community but I think there's a greater tolerance and acceptance amongst us because you know we almost have we have this code in our meetings that you can accept this you can reject mm-hmm. this it's totally okay I mean we're we're this is suggested I mean I think that we're more open than the more rigid I mean if I mean there are groups that are very very rigid about this and they would not. There's got to just be one way of doing it, you know, and we're not like that at all. So we're more accepting, I think, of the different ap- approaches. There are some people in our, in uh, at the convention who don't even want to have anything to do with the steps right. at all, and that's perfectly fine. I'm okay with that. The first time I heard it in my life, I thought that was crazy. What do you mean, you, you know, you don't you don't want to do right. the steps? I thought it was absolutely insane. But now I'm I'm relaxed about it too because I I've realized, yeah, you know what? Who cares? You go to meetings and a lot of this stuff happens anyway. I mean. Right. So, well, and I think yeah. for
1: anybody and I'm speaking for myself too, if I want to try and control what anybody thinks about AA for on this atheist side, even like why would he even dare work step two and step three or this or that it's, but I can have that belief for myself, but I shouldn't try and control that for anybody else who claims to be an atheist or an agnostic. It's, it, it's, it's the same thing as a dogmatist just on the other end of the spectrum. It's, mm-hmm. um, Again, the the thing that I like about, well, I've been to several agnostic and atheist meetings at different places. Some are more formal. Some are more like you're just sitting around having coffee, practically. Um, right. You know, I, we, I was at coffee with some friends last night. We were talking about finally starting a meeting here. And one of the people is a believer who wants to be involved in this. And um, another one of the women said, well, I always just like getting together with coffee. Why do we need to make this some formal meeting thing? And I said, well, yeah. some of the meetings I go to are totally informal. Stuff's yeah. barely read. People are just having conversation, you know, yeah. a-, a meeting can be. It's not a
0: bad way to have a meeting, actually. Yeah,
1: especially <laughs> if it's small. I mean, it's uh, it's. We have the right to have the meeting be whatever the heck we want the meeting to be.
0: We absolutely We have do. that right. Yeah, we're starting a new meeting here. On, it's going to be noon on Saturdays. And I'm wanting to do something different with it than what we do at our typical other meetings. All of our meetings are like almost like any other AA meeting in Kansas City in that we have a reading that we that we base our meeting mm-hmm. on. And then we all go around and talk about it. But um, – our, the only difference with our group is our readings aren't the big yeah. book. <laughs> it's some other, it's like Josie's book or something. But I want the noon meeting to be different. This new meeting that we're starting on Saturday, I want it to be maybe no reading at all. And maybe what um, I, I, I'm thinking about is like this meeting I went to in New York City where basically you just have one person that will maybe, t- you might invite this person to speak, you know, for like 10, 15 minutes and then base the meeting on, on mm-hmm. that talk. I'm thinking about maybe doing something like that um, to get away from all the, The book stuff.
1: Well, it, it happens half the time in meetings anyway, right? A topic starts out as one thing, and then somebody says yeah. something pretty good, and it bounces off of that. And yeah,
0: yeah. okay, let's go into one other thing about this this um, inventory. There's another part to it, and they they wrote a whole section on it. It's the sex the sex mm-hmm. part. And you know when i when I was doing this, um, my sexual experience I didn't really have that a lot of sexual experiences or really at all. But I did have um, hang ups, relationship problems. Um, I I was uh my my drinking um prevented me from having healthy relationships with the opposite sex um i would have um a girlfriend or something and i would just get drunk and and leave um i i would um not keep commitments, or I, I had this fear of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, I had. That's the kind of stuff I had to look at. Is the relationships with with the opposite sex, or if you're uh, if you're gay, um, this the same sex, your partners, whatever. But I, that those those emotional romantic relationships, I did take a different look at them because maybe there was some something different going on there. So that's kind of how I approached it. But I looked at it the very same way that I did with my resentments. I just basically... Looked at each relationship each person that where the relation where the relationship went wrong or whatever and which was almost every single Mm -hmm. one of them and and I and I tried to learn something about myself and I did use that this was the most difficult thing for me as a as a new person in recovery was trying to figure out a way to have healthy relationships and start dating because I was a I was an incredibly shy person um, um, Ben when I was a when I was a Mm -hmm. kid when I was like in high school and stuff when I was learning how to when I was starting for starting to date I was so damn mm-hmm. shy, and um, it was alcohol that made it possible for me to kind of get over that shyness. But damn it, that alcohol I couldn't control it. So it was like I was taking it as some type of medicine to make to give me the ability to talk. But I couldn't stop the drinking, so I'd end up just being an idiot right. and 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 disappearing. So I could never have a, a decent relationship ever when I was drinking. Right. So the step helped me a lot because I was able to examine <coughs> my problem here with with this. You know what was. I afraid of? Um, where was I, where was I selfish, self-centered, um, self-seeking, dishonest and afraid? I was able to take a look at my part of that. Then I was able to make some change going forward. But for me, it was, it was very, very slow. Um, to do. And I will make an aside comment. I think one thing that prevented me from um, that slowed down my growth in this area of personal relationships with the opposite sex while I was in recovery. I went to an all-men's group. Mm-hmm. All-men's group. So I wasn't getting feedback and input and and from women. Yeah. I I missed that for most of my sobriety. Um and I so I think that's kind of important to that you do you do go to mixed meetings and Not to get into relationships with women. I'm not saying that at all, but just to understand their view, just to, just to, just to get, get some insight. Because when I was, when I was a kid, women were like from Mars or something. They were completely different, but it's, so it's, you have a real benefit in AA of actually understanding them that they're not really that different. So I don't know, but like I say, I was I was a I was a young person and I I was very immature because I never really grew up because of my drinking. So I was kind of starting from ground zero.
1: Oh, for sure, it totally resonated with me when you said that too. That I think alcohol allowed me to get over my inhibitions about sex, and I'll I'll say yeah. a lot of those inhibitions about sex came from religion. Um, oh yeah. So. Yeah, oh, yeah, so I think my first girlfriend and now my wife are the only two people in my life that I was sober for the first time I had sex with them. You know, the rest of the yeah. time it was like I about had to be drunk just to even feel comfortable. You know, to I think on some level alcohol allowed me to be myself. You know, it, at the beginning of my drinking, not even the beginning of my drinking time wise, but the beginning of my drinking that night, it allowed me to just get over that awkwardness and and discomfort and allowed me to be more of myself. Now, obviously, that's bad in the long run. Mm But um, yeah, it's and what that part of this book is talking about is, I guess, our relationships too, and how yeah. uh, we were talking about this at coffee last night. My nephew is younger than me, so he still goes to young people's meetings around here. And he'll say that lots of times in the meetings, there, relationships will get brought up as a topic and people, people in the young people's group, he says, tend to seem to think they need to date another addict or alcoholic because they right. need that person to understand them. You know, they, I've right. got to have someone to understand me. Well, what I've grown to understand for at least myself is... That that line of thinking is part of the problem. It's it I've got it, and I, I know our book and working the steps get into this, but it's like I've got a I've got to trust to try and understand somebody else. I've got to understand myself, and that helps me understand somebody else understanding themselves, and we come together in a partnership that way. It's it's it's, it's exactly. very self-serving to think well I've got to have somebody who understands my recovery and how important it is to me. So and I
0: yeah you're absolutely I agree with you. You it's important for us to understand ourselves and to be comfortable with ourselves. And as long as that we have that self-comfort with ourselves, then other people will be comfortable with us. It's not important for them to have that kind of understanding. And also I will say this after many years being an AA, just because that we're in AA and we, and we have that, we do have a common problem with drinking. We're not all identical because right. you know, also I could, I could sit there and talk to somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous about what depression is for me and, and they would have no clue, mm-hmm. you know? So they're, they're we, we don't have a a perfect understanding on everything. Um, I never dated anybody in the program and I, it's okay to do that. Um, but you damn it, make sure that you're, that you're, that you're, that you know what you're doing, that you're healthy, that you're both healthy, that you're both in a good place to start doing that. Cause I think it can be dangerous. Um, if you're not both, you know, what, what happens if the relationship doesn't work out, you know, and you're going to go to the meeting together again. I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of issues there. Uh, I never had to deal with it cuz I went to a men's group. Yeah. So I never really dated anybody in the program. When I got married, my wife is not having knows nothing about AA except for through me and and that's fine. Um so I'm okay with that, but there are a lot of people that have relationships in in the program. Um, yeah,
1: it it uh it does make it awkward I think when people break up. I I've, I've never had a relationship in the program either the first 4 years I was sober, I didn't date anyone and that wasn't some huge commitment or anything. It was just Well, I was spending plenty of time in meetings. I was, uh, you know, working on becoming a counselor and all that stuff too. So I just didn't, it just, I knew I wasn't going to actively seek that for a while and it just never really presented itself. But it, it, it's definitely awkward figuring out how, and I understand where the young people in those meetings come from too. It's like, wow, I drinking used to be so much a part of my life and how I define myself and, and it, made me think you know well other people aren't going to think i'm fun anymore if i don't drink so i need to be with other people who are sober and know how to have fun and this and that but it's like right. it was more i needed to learn myself and understand myself and learn how to have fun sober so that i could participate with other people human beings who were, you know, doing whatever they did. And
0: something I found out because when I, I started dating after maybe, I guess I was two years sober when I, I went on my first date. And I wish I would have, it doesn't matter. I married happily, happily married. I don't know what happened to her, but she was a very nice person. Mm-hmm. And I knew her from, I knew her from a previous um life somewhere. It was a college or whatever. Very nice person. But um, for whatever reason, I didn't, I didn't pursue that relationship. I, I don't know if I was really ready to get involved. Um, but there was no pain involved with that and and i remember when i did go out with her that drinking had abs there was she wasn't interested in drinking at all i mean if she did drink it was it was a normal thing so back when i was drinking i th- I might have thought that everybody was a drinker but not necessarily is is that the case in fact i remember i remember when i was drinking ben i would show up for a date and i would be drunk and the poor girl she was sober yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so anyway, but then I started dating a little bit more and the hardest part for me was the rejection mm-hmm. that would, that comes from it. Cause not everybody's going to want to go out with you and not everybody's going to want to go out with you again. And boy, that was just devastating for me when I was very first starting yeah. out. And, and by this time I'm like in my late twenties or early thirties, you know? So I, I'm acting like a high school kid, right. you know? But this is the kind of stuff that I had to learn. It was very, very, very difficult. I'm glad I didn't do it with someone in the program. If if I had a home group where I was doing that, I don't know if I would have been able to handle a rejection. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. It's tough. Well, It definitely
1: threatens your security then if, you know, how much AA means to us in the early going. When I, uh, yeah, dating for me too, when I was drunk was uh, a mess. I either dated people who were just as sick as I was or even sicker than I was because I think it allowed me to deny my drinking problem when somebody was a bigger mess than I was. And I I would Mm -hmm. fall into relationships. I never really chose, it never felt like I chose them. I mean, we always are choosing them, but I would just fall into them and, if somebody who was a decent person, somehow a few decent women seemed to actually want to date me during all those times I was partying hard, um, I would push them away, like really subtly push them away or not not engage in anything serious because I, I think I knew – that if I was going to be with that person who was a decent person, it would mean I was going to have to clean my act up. And that I, I wouldn't yeah. be able to do what it seemed like it was I wanted to do. So I ran from that responsibility like crazy. But then the the hardcore party woman at the bar, I mean, I would fall into those relationships and feel like I couldn't get out of them. I would take on more of the codependent role in those relationships then. And, mm. and we'd bounce back and forth. And I remember I would drink less for a while because they were such a mess. And then it probably, you know, this is some four-step stuff here, but it was kind of... Mm-hmm it kind of allowed me to feel superior to them because they were a mess. And then mm. I don't, you know, gosh, it's taking me back there. That chaos and craziness. <laughs> yeah. And then I think being a sober person and then dating, it allowed allowed me to grow and change. Like you said, like, you know, it sounds like junior high stuff, but it was like yeah. being, being able to just tell someone that like, I'm sorry, I'd, I'm not, you know, you're a very nice person, but I'd, I don't care to go out on any more dates with you, you know, and be able to yeah. either reject someone, I guess that's rejection, but like be able to do that without like ghosting, away and like giving giving yeah. them the dignity of just saying hey I just don't quite feel like it's working I think you're really nice and being polite about yeah. it or the on the other hand if people didn't want to date me again I didn't I didn't have to feel awful about it it's okay if one person in the entire world didn't find me attractive and want to keep dating me
0: you know this is where this is this is where it's almost really true when they you often hear when you get into the program that your development stops at whatever point you started drinking in a way, you know, because I was drinking in high school when I should have been going through all of this crap. I should have been dealing with the rejections and stuff. But I didn't really date in high school. I didn't really go to dances or anything. I I, I drank. <laughs> I drank, you know. Um, and I continued that after high school. So here I am now, my mid twenties and early thirties, learning this stuff. I'll tell you something though that changed everything about dating the internet. Because the internet came around, I was I was like thirty five, I guess, when I I started doing the online dating uh-huh. stuff. It changes everything because now, before that, it was hard to find someone to go out to to ask someone out. You had you had to actually meets you had to go meets go someplace and meet somebody physically meet somebody maybe in a bowling league or whatever you had to meet them and then you had to you had to face to face ask them on a date Mm -hmm. okay it was a totally totally different thing now with the internet you put up a profile people look for you you get connected and you have so many damn dates right i was going on dates like crazy i got so damn tired of it but in a way it was kind of good practice too because it was like okay i don't like this person this person doesn't like me so i wonder if people have this issue as much as 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 Um, you know, I wonder about that. You
1: know, I don't know. I guess you could say like some of the (laughs) Tinder and those sites are a way to, you know, still behave that same way. You know, it just, that's a side I haven't heard of. That's kind of, it's more just for people who are looking for a quick hookup or whatever. Oh, (laughs) but you're right. I mean, the, the online dating with, um, you know, match, and you know the ones that are more relationship based, or more people that tend uh-huh. to be serious. It can cut through a lot of that crap. I wanted to say too. Yeah. I had kind of a risky time in the middle of, I don't know, I was probably four or five years sober. I wouldn't say it was risky, but there was a a woman I knew from close to my hometown, and like, oh man, she was just, I my opinion of her was that she was so beautiful and so unattainable, and I didn't quite have my self esteem and confidence up yet. And we went out on a couple of dates, and they would they went really well. And then I got way too excited too quick you know and then I you know probably push the issue too much but not in a bad way but I was kind of chasing her more than she was chasing me and then it became this cat and mouse game and I think because I was sober I could recognize the unhealthiness of this back and forth when we were you know playing that little game and it was like I would be really interested in her show her a lot of attention and then she would back away and then as soon as I backed away and went well maybe she's just not interested then she would you know it was it was just getting real gamey she would try and pull me back in and then when I didn't talk Her for a while, then she'd invite me on a date, and then it would kind of all start over again. And because I was sober and done some of this stuff we talk about, I was able to just say that to myself that this feels gamey, and it just feels like something that's not going to be healthy long term. Now, this woman was very beautiful. Like I I really wanted, she was somebody I would want to say was my girlfriend, but the the to other people. Like, so that's like concerned about how other people would look at the situation. But the act of us dating and playing that cat and mouse game back and forth—I mean, that's just not a good sign for the future. And yeah. and I was able to just step away from that and just say, you know, sorry, I'm not interested in doing this any longer. And that was a tough thing to say because I really wanted to keep spending time with this person. So
0: for people that are in the program and they're they're single or whatever and they're dating and they're maybe new to sobriety, um, if you if you if you do this, um, this this would be helpful, I think, to understand that this is normal. Mm-hmm. This is normal stuff. Um, you know, all people have these issues. And to go ahead and take it as a learning experience and as a growing experience and embrace the pain. Um, one thing I used to hear was um, the pain that you feel in recovery is pain going away. Um, so I don't know if that's always true, but no,
1: I think that's true. <laughs> anyway. It's 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 pain that's resolving as long as we're continuing to push through it. I mean, don't yeah. get into it and get stuck. We got to just keep pushing through it. It's like you know, we've got plenty of slogans in the program to help with that, but it's like just keep going through it. Keep trusting that incrementally we get better day by day by day by day. Whether we think we are or not. If we just stay engaged in this process, I found that to be true.
0: Well, Ben, we had a pretty good conversation about this. We actually went over an hour. Um, so I don't think, I think that when we talk about step five, because um, maybe what you suggested is a good idea that we incorporate a discussion of sponsorship with step five, because that is where your sponsor really gets involved i mean oftentimes if we're going to do a step five which is where we actually you know share for those that don't know we actually share our inventory with the person in step five well usually it's your sponsor yeah so it's a great time to talk about sponsorship. Absolutely. Too. Well, I hope that this this discussion was helpful to people out there. Um, I look forward to writing, doing a little write-up about this. And if you want to write something, Ben, too, that would be great to put up there about the fourth step um, that we could put up there with the podcast. But um, a pleasure, Ben. Very, very much a pleasure to speak with you. I enjoyed this a great yeah, deal. Yeah, me
1: too, John. Thank you so much for including me in this.
0: Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back next week with another episode featuring Mary M., who will be sharing her experience, strength, and hope as an atheist in AA. We'll talk to you then.